Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Angola's opposition picks its first new leader in 16 years. Will Unita's new man contribute to Angola's future? And China's streaming service Boomplay is rapidly gaining market share and signing deals with U.S. record labels. What does this mean for African artists and competitors like Spotify and Apple Music? Plus, we have a conversation about African prints, their cultural significance, and their role in the creative economy. This is our fourth episode in partnership with African Arguments. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In November, Angola's opposition, UNITA, elected Adalberto da Costa Jr. as its new leader. The newly elected Angola's opposition leader, Adalberto Costa Jr. of UNITA party, addresses supporters in Luanda on Saturday after he took over from Isaiah Samakova, who resigned after 16 years at the helm of the ex-rebel movement. Costa Jr. takes over the party just two years after João Lorenzo replaced long-serving president José Eduardo dos Santos. What are the implications of these political party transitions for Angola's immediate future? Joining me to discuss the new Angolan opposition and other topics is Aubrey Hubri, a senior associate at the Atlantic Council, Topaz Mkulu, who is part of the Africa program here at CSIS, and Idza Luhumio, an advocate and writer. This is our fourth episode in partnership with African Arguments. And for our listeners, Africa Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Now, we discussed Jao Lorenzo's rise in episode 22, and we didn't have enough time to talk about this other dynamic happening in the opposition. Just one day after Lorenzo signing in, the leader of UNITA, Isaiah Samakuva, announced that he planned to step down. Samakuva had been UNITA's leader since 2003 following the death of former founder Jonas Savimbi, who led the movement for 27 years during the Civil War. Now, many observers that I've talked to think that Acosta Jr.'s promotion was a good move. And I have found out that he goes by the initials Ase Jato, and I had to look that up on YouTube. I had to call a friend. I think that's the right pronunciation in Portuguese. You can write me if I got that wrong. But Samakuva really struggled, at least in my opinion, as Unita's leader, never really able to get out of Savimbi's shadow. And Costa Jr.'s resume is really impressive. Joined Unita in 1957 when he was just 13 years old, served as the party's representative to Portugal, Italy, and Spain, and has been parliamentary leader. Samakuva said that Unita needed a new leader to take the party forward through these new political cycle. I think that it's really important to see what's happening in the opposition as part of this broader transition in Angola. Now, Aubrey, you hosted Angola's foreign minister, Manuel Dominguez Augusto, at the Atlantic Council, where he talked, you know, about what we're talking about today, a new Angola. Can you kind of share us a little bit of your thoughts about the foreign minister's statements and how he thinks about where Angola is going? Yeah, thank you, Judd. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, He really outlined kind of three areas of change and progress in in Angola under uh, Lorenzo. And the first has to do with uh, the economic side, which is progress against their new national development plan. 
this at the core is trying to diversify the Angolan economy. We know that it's heavily, heavily dependent on oil. And it really involves the privatizations of a lot of state entities. I mean, we're talking 195 state-owned companies, everything from finance to telecom. And that is a process going to be overseen by the World Bank and has a lot of interest. The second area is just a greater openness and activity level for regional issues. He was speaking because he was en route back to Luanda to negotiate between Rwanda and Uganda over border issues uh, they were having. And so this really shows a, a more active diplomatic stance. And thirdly, a, a view that there needs to be greater partnerships with Europe and the U.S., so a diversification of global partners, because historically, post-war, uh, Angola was very dependent on the, the Angolan-China relationship. So what was the feeling in the room? I think it, the sense of the room was that it's still early days. There are obviously big bridges of trust that need to be filled because there's an issue where a lot of Americans and American business haven't known Angola very well outside of the oil sector. And so it's getting the word out about the opportunities that come from these privatizations and the opportunities that are presented uh, by this new administration. And so I think it's still early days for getting that kind of excitement outside of the oil sector. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up the opposition is that if we want to see the ruling party move forward in these reforms, they are going to need to have a domestic push. And so one of the things that may be interesting about the new UNITA leader is what is he going to do uh, on the other side of the aisle? Is he going to present an alternative vision and then there'll be a good you know, dialectic between the two? And I would encourage our policymakers to think about this as an opportunity, transition in the ruling party and transition in the opposition party. Yeah, I think from the U.S. perspective in promoting democracy and in the region, it's a good thing. Um, you have change on both sides and you have uh, leadership that is uh, trying to define a new path separated from the experience of, of the war and the uh, historical foundings of these two parties. And, you know, at the same time, though, what you have is is Lorenzo being surrounded by checks and balances in a way and so less able to move quickly on things in a way that if he had all the control that Dos Santos had for so long, he would have been able to kind of push through an agenda faster. But now you have more checks and balances. You have to engage and balance the needs of the party with the people. And that slows processes down. As we know in this country, democracy yeah. can be very slow. I just want to leave our listeners with two things to think about on the opposition side. First of all, it's going to be really important to watch how Costa Jr. repositions UNITA. In the last election, UNITA increased its legislative seats to 51. That's up from eight in 2008. And most observers have really remarked on the fact that UNITA prevented MPLA from winning a majority of the vote in the capital, which is their historic heartland. So the Costa comes into power in a position building on some growing UNITA strength. And then second, this is really part of a more interesting story in Southern Africa. We are seeing turnover. In fact, in every single country in Southern Africa outside of the kingdom of Eswatini, we have seen new leaders take over these historic opposition parties or they've struck out on their own and created a new party. So I wrote an article in the Mail and Guardian in South Africa about this, really focusing on how many of these leaders are 50 or younger. But if you just step out another step back, you can see that there's really some interesting transitions happening in Southern Africa, even if we largely talk about the domination of the liberation states. 
And from an external perspective, I think it'd be very interesting to watch how Angola does try to diversify its global partnerships. Um, it's one thing to say that you want to engage the U.S. or Europe, but then being such an oil-dependent economy in an era where the U.S. is self-sufficient in in oil makes it more difficult to see the strategic value of, of a deep partnership if it's not around regional issues. If we're not there and the U.S. companies are not there, then don't be surprised when someone else fills that gap. Historically, China filled the gap, gave $20 billion in loans for infrastructure over a, I don't know, 15-year period to Angola. And it'll be interesting to see how that relationship evolves, plus how the Russians, the Europeans, the Turks, the Americans all look at opportunities in this new Angola. Well, that's a perfect transition to talk about another Chinese company that is making real headway in sub-Saharan Africa. I want to talk about Boomplay. Music that gets you. Get it on Boomplay. Topaz, what is Boomplay and why is it important? So Boomplay is a music and video streaming service that's now considered to be the fastest growing music application in Africa. And as you mentioned, it's it's a Chinese venture. So it's a joint Chinese venture between the phone maker Transion and Chinese consumer apps NetEase. This is all under the company Transnet Music Limited. The two are a perfect match, I think, because NetEase has experience in the music streaming business and Transion is an expert in local operations. They first launched in Nigeria in, in 2015, and now they have over 60 million users across the continent, which is pretty fast. Overall, I think two main factors have contributed to this growth. Uh, first, I would say Transient Holdings are the marketers of Infinix and Techno, which are two very popular phone brands in Sub-Saharan Africa. And they've used this to their advantage by pre-installing Boomplay, the app, on the handsets of their consumers. So when you buy a, a Techno phone, you already have that pre-installed in your phone. So a lot of their customers have discovered the app by just having the phone. Um, a second factor I would say is that Boomplay fills a gap in Africa's flourishing creative industry just by providing a space for local music content, which no other company is really doing. They're considered to be the Spotify of Africa, but with the added functionality of video and increased online interaction. So Topaz, you and I were having a conversation about this at lunch, and the point that we kind of reached is that Boomplay has this structural advantage right now because they're on all of the techno, all these trans and phones. And the second point you raise is almost the more interesting one is that can they win uh, the hearts and minds of Africans as a, as a tool? Now, Aubrey has written a lot about the creative industry. And when we were preparing for this episode, you know, you flagged that Boomplay now has licensing deals with Universal Music, Warner Music, and they just signed one with Sony. So American companies at least see that structural advantage. The question is, again, will Africans find it to be the right platform to get what they, you know, the music they want to listen to the artist? How, how do you think about all of this? Well, listen, I think in every sector across African markets, distribution is king. They've figured out 
distribution, right? You have it on all these techno phones, and techno has at least 54% of the uh, smartphone market. Um, and we know that's growing. They're keeping reducing the price of, of smartphones, and the smartphones are very much designed for the African user. There's been a lot written on on the cameras and being able to um, you know, better distinguish uh, black skin tones. And they've just done a lot of local um, research. And, and the company itself uh, made over $3 billion uh, in revenue last year. So they have distribution. And because of that, these big players want to come in on it. And let's be clear. I mean, I listen to Spotify just because that's what's, you know, predominant in our market. And I hear, you know, Burna Boy on Spotify. They, all these African artists are also getting on the international platform. So I don't really see a segregation between kind of local music platforms and international platforms anymore. They're becoming all one. And and it's just what whoever can get in the hands and in the ears of mo- more people, I think, will have the advantage. And that's the that's what Boomplay is is really pushing. I was reading recently they had like a concert that they played uh, on Boomplay only um, of a of a um, <clears throat> Nigerian uh, artist. And they have scouts now doing like these local concerts that you can only hear on Boomplay. So it's not just the experience of downloading a song from somewhere or listening to a song, streaming a song, but it is now kind of this engagement with the local creative industry, which will be interesting to see how that happens, where people were live in the in the in the concert, but also listening on Boomplay. So you're calling in from Nairobi. Yeah. Do you use Boomplay? Like, what do you and your friends think about this service, maybe versus Spotify or versus Apple Music? Thank you, Judd. So. I'm yet to use Boomplay, but I have had um, people talking, um, rather referring to it as the Spotify of Africa. Um, so I know it's positioning itself as a kind of a platform for African music, I think. So it will be interesting to kind of see how well people take it up. I haven't had many people um, say they're using it. So there's that also. Topaz, we had this interesting conversation about how they count listens or how they count their subscribership. Yeah, so they count um, their impact or how many people they have on the app based on how many times you log in. So if you've logged in twice, then you're counted as a user. So even if you're not subscribed to premium, you still count as a user if you've logged in twice. And I think it's, I don't know if you use Spotify, but I know that a lot of my friends in Kenya still do use Spotify and they use that through like VPNs. um, So that's going to be like one of the big challenges that Boomplay faces is cracking through. But I feel this is just a different market segment, right? I mean, we're talking generally the people we spend time with are the elites in the markets. They carry an iPhone. The current techno phone that was just released in Ethiopia um, was is about $120. That's the level of the kind of buy-in on 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 that um, consumer base. So I think it's a consumer segmentation thing to some extent. And I'm not sure that they're trying to think about how do we take users from Apple Music. I think they're trying to think how do we get more techno phones in the hands of people who don't yet have techno phones. What I haven't quite understood yet is how people, if they're innovating in any way on the payment of the account, like do you have to be banked to to do it? Is there a way to do this through mobile money, etc.? So that's an area that I think we need to dig a little bit deeper in to see if there's innovative ways that they could um, amplify their um, uh, user base uh, by by thinking on the fintech side. You know, I I, I almost stumbled into this topic. I, I thought that the answer was going to be, well, 
Boomplay is is dominating, which it is in terms of market, but there's all these interesting questions that we've just raised about structure, about who is the target, about when do you start having paid subscription, how do you do it? I think it's harder on the music side to see um, where that revenue and how many jobs it creates um, because it's these live shows, and you see that globally. But it's interesting space in terms of investment. More uh, venture investors are starting to try to look at investing in the creative space. I highly recommend people check out Aubrey's paper, Getting Creative About Development. It's fantastic. It's sort of my go-to paper to get a real smart take on the creatives. And it's something here at CSIS that we'd like to do more on. In fact, we'll be hosting a panel uh, for the April 2020 Global Development Forum on Africa's creative industry. So uh, stay tuned for more on that. I want to shift to our final topic. What I love about our partnership with African Arguments is that we get to showcase these really thought-provoking pieces on very important but sometimes underreported topics. And so if you've been listening to our show, we've done an episode with African Arguments on political transitions, on the power of soccer, on the the influence and importance of language. And I knew we had to ask Edza to come and talk to us after I read her really great article, which was How I Fell In out and back in love with the Lesso. Idza, can you set the stage for us? What is the Lesso? Why do you have a love-hate relationship with it? I like to think of the Lesso as an East African wrapper. Yeah, so it's a piece of fabric, usually made out of cotton, um, and it's worn throughout um, coastal East Africa, uh, mostly by women, but sometimes you'll find the occasional um, man wearing it. Yeah. So what I really, really, really love about the Lesso is that it's unique and specific to um, to East Africa. It speaks to a certain, um, in the article I talk about like certain East African um, coastal experience or sometimes even the East African um, female experience. But then I here I am talking about the Lesso, but also I have a love-hate relationship with it because because of my childhood, really, because um, it was the kind, it is a fabric that my mother and my aunties and literally the whole what I call the matriarchy would kind of throw towards you and tell you to cover up. So this is when you're wearing um shorts that are not respectable enough, or your dress is kind of short, or your chest is showing. And it was this this um sense that you had to cover up. So we felt very police. It was not just me, but also my female cousins, uh, my female friends. There's always this kind of song or chorus around us telling us to kind of cover up. And so fast forward to maybe 2010, 2011, and suddenly um, I noticed that there's this, like the, the, not just the lesso, but the African print had become a kind of um, a pop culture artifact, yeah? Like, it was kind of a renaissance in African print. And for me, I couldn't just reconcile these two things. So on the one hand, this is the very fabric that had kind of made me feel very small sometimes when I was um, young, growing up as a girl. And I felt um, as if um, anything that I wore had to be made to be good enough for usually the male gaze. But then on the other hand, um, it's become very cool or fashionable or it's a, it's a fad that everybody is getting into. Topaz, does that resonate with you? You know, do you have a love-hate relationship? What do you think about the Lesso? It's I really liked your piece, and I think I could relate to a lot of what you said. Even though it varies household by household, a lot of the same issues ring true for people. I think the cloth has a lot of symbolism in it, and so there's that duality, which is what you talk about in your piece. Um, 
And so when I think of the lasso, I think about the one my mom used when she was making chapatis in the household yes. and she would like wrap it around herself. Um, and then I also think of the women that you see on the streets um, manning fruit carts and they have those they use those to put to like wrap their money around the waste as they're selling um, selling items. Uh, so I think there's an element of empowerment. You see women with their babies strapped to their back as they're going about their daily chores, as they're working, as they're um, organizing in the streets. And you also see, on the other hand, you can also see that it's used to police a woman's body. When I really think back, it wasn't necessarily like a lesson that was thrown at me, but um, just the expectation that you can't just walk around with shorts, you can't just walk around with a skirt. Um, for me, I think of my swimming days when I was swimming in high school, I would just grab a lesson as sort of a substitute for a towel when I was walking around on deck because you're expected not to be indecent and indecency is if you're not covered up. So I definitely resonate with a lot of what you said. Um, and I also think that as society evolves and as generations come and go, so does the meaning of the lesso and the meaning behind the lesso. Um, similar to what you mentioned with fashion, the cloth yeah. I think is being used creatively. We see it on runways in, in Nairobi, in Kenya. You see it on blazers stitched to the fabric. You also see it even on crop tops, which I think is funny now that it was used to cover up and now people are using it as a statement piece. Um, and so I think tradition will hold steady and it will always remain to be multifunctional, but um, I think women are now becoming more empowered in terms of what they use the lesser for. And we have more agency in determining if we use it or if we don't use it and how we use um, the lesser. Let's talk about the lesser and African print, as you said, cultural artifact. Aubrey, some of the work you've done has been on fashion too. Can you kind of expand our lens on a little bit here. Sure. So, I mean, we know the global fashion industry is huge. It's $5 trillion. Um, and of that luxury is probably 450, maybe $500 billion. And everyone's kind of going after that. And then the local African market for apparel and, and footwear is somewhere around 30 billion. And so you do have this question of, you know, is it for the local market or global market? And, you know, the diaspora is a linkage between these and you have incredible African designers that are designing at the big um, fashion houses, and they're bringing in all kinds of cultural uh, inspiration. That said, you can't talk about it with also the without the question of cultural appropriation, because you know people are you know anyone can incorporate a kente design into to their fashion and what's to stop them right and it, the question is who owns it who's in, you know who's benefiting from it and i think it's just a really murky area that we don't have a lot of insight into uh, right now. And so if you take and you put the the, the, the luxury aside, because people are going to always spend a lot of money for the luxury, but you look at kind of mega fashion trends or, or just fashion trends that are affecting regular consumers globally, it's not clear how um, African produced uh, fashion is going to fit into that new world because it's an anti-fast fashion world that's coming out where people are looking at kind of used clothing platforms now. Everyone's trying to get and understand the environmental uh, impact of fast fashion. So you might not see Africa benefit in the same way that, say, a Vietnam has used or a Bangladesh has used fast fashion to create jobs. 
Idza, you talked a little about, and so did Topaz, about like the gender dynamics around African print. As it moves from a household to a runway in Nairobi to a runway in Paris, how do you navigate that? Aubrey kind of mentioned cultural appropriation. I think it's part of it too, but this is a piece of fabric that's got a lot of um, cultural symbolism and some negative and some positive. Yeah, so a big part of it for me, um, like coming to terms with just what the lesson means to me is the, the, the aspect of agency. So that you get to an age where the lesson is no longer something that you are, that is kind of imposed on you because of other people, but it's something that you are going towards yourself. So you can maybe make it into a crop top or a miniskirt or even just incorporate it into your house, not necessarily even your what you wear, but um, make cushions out of it, uh, have beds with. So it's this um, sense that the lesson has become something that um, you choose as opposed to you know, being the obverse of empowerment. I also think what makes it unique, I mean, if you talk like cultural appropriation, we see a lot of the Kitangas and um, Kangas now appearing in, in the U.S. and different tourist shops, but uh, manned by, not by Africans really. Um, but with the lesser, what is very special about it is, especially the ones with the inscriptions at the bottom, that's really hard to... Yeah to duplicate because it has a special message and that message is usually in Swahili. Wait, isn't it in print? I mean, it's sewed into the it's fabric? It's sewed into the fabric. Okay. And the Chinese haven't found a way to print that. I mean, look at wax cloth. Wax cloth in West Africa yeah. is massively oh, produced in China now. That's true. So that's the whole question on who benefits and where is the development dividend for for a takeoff in African fashion? I mean, I can see it when, when I did the report, I looked at, you know, fashion, film and music specifically, I can see very clearly like how a Nollywood industry and how a South African Cape Town film industry creates jobs and revenue and all of these things and how film and music are non-rival goods. So if I, I consume it, I listen to a song in Nairobi, Judd can be listening to it here in DC and there's no diminishing aspect right. of that. It becomes more difficult at, to understand how the benefit will be because if you're not producing mass for the for the U.S. market in factories, which Ethiopia is doing, but not many other countries are doing in Africa, and you're not um, getting the benefit from like an intellectual property or royalties kind of perspective uh, from anyone using it, then it, it, it. But what it does do is it gives like a positive feel for the continent, and I think that soft. It's a form of African soft power. Yeah. No, I agree, and I I think. When you look at how it's monetized in Kenya, it's very small. So it's young people yeah. who have created small entrepreneurship businesses that are creating hoodies with like the print sewn into like a section of the hoodie um, or like the Maasai's selling to tourists that come into Kenya. So it's not really large scale. Edza, what do you think? Is this a form of soft power? Yeah, I agree with um, both Aubrey and Topaz. I think it's a form of soft power. Like I said earlier, many people, it's, it's, it's an item that is mostly used by women. So there's a kind of uh, uh, ritualization of the lesser. So it's a very, it's a kind of like an identity marker. People are holding on to it as more than just the kind of thing that will kind of make them money or they can engage in large-scale production. Most of the companies in Mombasa that in Tanzania that actually um, uh, like kind of engage in the production of the lesser do it on a very small-scale level. I think for most of the women who don't the lesser, it's, and many people who actually sell the lesser, 
it's more of a cultural artifact than something that will be blown up into a bigger kind of thing. For one piece of it, though, I think is that there is a a shift away from, you know, from just Western tastes. We have, um, you know, millions and millions of people moving to cities for the first time from all over, from different backgrounds. And I think you see that there are shifting tastes, whether it's, you know, headscarves in some part of the Muslim world and what that means to women, the same kind of dialogue can come with a lesso and and all these, you know, we're going to have urban centers of mega cities. They're going to have a mix of all of this uh, cultural richness. And people are the question, I think, comes exactly to what Idza said, one of agency. Can you choose what you want to wear and, and self-express through fashion in the way that fashion has always been there? Idza, I'm going to give you the, the last word. In your piece, and as we've talked about, you said that the lesso is a piece of heritage that we can call our own ours to own. And so as I think about some of our listeners, what is the message that we want a diplomat, an activist, you know, just a fan of African fashion, a scholar to take away from your piece in this conversation? Yeah. So when I was working on the article and actually writing it, I, my, my initial aim was to kind of place the lesson within the general or overall discourse on, you know, like African heritage. Yeah. So you know, the idea about laying claim over something as, uh, what, complicated as heritage means you own it to the point where you can actually have nuanced discussions about it. So, yes, the lesso is fantastic and it's a symbol of empowerment and uh, many women have found many uses for it. Uh, we can't just say, as Africans, that is, or East Africans, you cannot just um, lay claim to it, but women, East African women in particular, can say this is something that enables us to practice agency in certain um, respects, but then that's not the whole story about the lesso. And I think this can be said about many other things that we... Um, call like our collective heritage and in writing the article I think that's just what I was trying to kind of grapple with these contradictions in the lesser and by extension any other um, form of cultural artifact. I think that's a that's a really helpful framing for anyone who wants to try to think about Africa's creative industries, Africa's soft power is thinking about contradictions that are inherent there and I think ultimately just to be mindful I think that it's a place that we should be going in terms of thinking about how to navigate and engage, but be mindful that uh, there are multiple meanings to to all of these yeah. things. Let me uh, yeah. thank everyone for joining us. And uh, we are going on holiday break. And so our next episode will air on January 9th. Have a good uh, vacation. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.